0: It is great to see you here today at the Vista. Uh, if we have not met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you are joining us for the first time, second time, we just could not be happier that you're with us. A lot of us remember how hard it is to go to church for the very first time. And so we hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted and feel right at home here at the Vista. Uh, before we jump in, just a couple things to let you know about. We've got fall kind of kicking into gear Good time to form some new healthy routines and habits, and get connected. We've got a lot of stuff starting up for you. Just wanted to draw your attention to two of those things. First is a class called Alpha. This is for people who are new to or skeptical about Christian faith. It's on Monday nights at six thirty here at the Vista. It's a meal. Uh, you get together and you just talk about faith, questions that you have, questions uh, that you've had running around in your mind. So if, if you, that's you, then Mondays at six thirty Alpha, great class. And then we've got another class called the Apprentice Series. That's a formation class for people who want to go deeper in their faith. It's on Sunday mornings at eleven forty-five. It's led by Mark and Jana Whitaker. Uh, Mark is one of our elders. Any time you can spend with the Whitakers is a good time. You ought to do the class just so you can hang out with the Whitakers. But would really encourage you to check either of those classes out. Uh, today we are in the fourth week of our series called "Exploring the Essentials" series, where we are walking through six beliefs and practices that are essential to historic. Orthodox, faithful Christian faith, because as we have said throughout the course of this series, and you can probably say it with me now on the count of three, one, two, three, you don't get to make Christianity up. Now, of course, none of us mean to do it. You, know, you don't wake up one morning and go, "You know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to make Christianity up for myself." But it still happens, and it happens very, very easily. As we've noted, fundamentalists have this habit of making Christianity up by adding to it, by making non-essential things, things that you can have an opinion on, that's fine, but non-essential things like how old is the earth, proper roles of men and women, the house and church, by making these non-essential things essential. And then we noted that progressives often have a habit of making Christianity up by subtracting from it, by taking essential things like the resurrection and making them non-essential. And again, there's no need to point any fingers here because as we discussed last week, We are all guilty as charged, right? The defense rests. We're all guilty as charged. We're all guilty of creating Christianity in our own image from time to time. And that is why it's so important to periodically get back to the basics, brush up on the essentials so that we can make sure we are receiving the faith instead of making it up because, as we've said throughout the series, we don't get to and we don't want to make Christianity up for ourselves. Amen? I don't, know about you. I'm not, I don't trust myself enough to make Christianity up for myself. I want to receive the faith that has been passed down, tried, tested by my spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith. In the context of our series, we are doing that by going through these six beliefs that we here at the Vista, following the lead of the Big C Church throughout space and time, have called Essential Beliefs. You can find all those at thevista.tv beliefs. And today we're going to talk about what we, following the lead of the church, believe about church. So here's what we believe about church. We believe the church is the body of Christ, a glimpse of the coming kingdom of God, a community of disciples following Jesus together, blessed by God in order to bless the world in the name of God. you got your Bibles, grab them. We'll be in Ephesians 1, verses 18 through 24. It'll be up on the screen for you, 18 through 23, as always. If you don't have your Bible, we've got some in front of the sound booth that you can grab and keep. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. This is the Apostle Paul writing here. So starting in verse 18. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. all right, Ephesians 1 18 through 23. And this is just a beautiful portion of scripture. But before we explore it, I, I have to start by telling you something that is, is very sad but it's also very true, and and you need to know it. Namely, um, your children will likely be less involved with church than you, and your grandchildren will likely be less involved than your children. Put a bit more starkly, there's a really, really good chance that your grandchildren will not care very much about your faith, and a really good chance they ain't going to a church anywhere. Now, I mentioned this a few months ago, but there was a recent Gallup poll that revealed that for the first time in American history, a majority of Americans are now not members of religious communities. You remember this graph? Overwhelming majority of Americans for all of American history, you know, three fourths around have belonged to religious communities. And then over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, there's been this very precipitous drop in people's participation in religious communities, especially churches does that make anybody else sad make anybody else sad yeah it it makes me sad because y'all i mean i I have all sorts of problems with christians and churches right because we can be the worst we really can and i know that churches hurt people i do and do you know how i know that churches hurt people i'd like you to raise your hand if you hurt people Hmm. So we have this church full of people who hurt people. I, I get how it I've, I've heard people in this church. People in this church have hurt me. I know that churches hurt people. And y'all, despite all that, I just got to tell you, I absolutely love the church. I adore the church. I love church. This church, but not just this church. I love all I love the church spread out through space and time, different languages, cultures. I love the church. Not only am I not ashamed of the church, but dare I be so bold as to say that I am very, very proud of the church. I think that the church is beautiful. I think the church is resilient. I think the church is revolutionary. I think that besides Jesus Christ Himself, there has been no greater blessing to the human race than the church. I think that so many of the things that you and I and everybody else take for granted are gifts of the church. We think they just fell down out of heaven one day. They didn't fall down out of heaven. Things have not always been this way. They are gifts of the church. Just to give you two examples, take things like hospitals and human rights. Those are pretty good things, yeah? I like those things. I'm for them. That's our position on hospitals and human rights. We're for them. Did they just fall down out of heaven one day? No, no, they didn't. I've mentioned this before. But did you know that the world's first real hospital was created by a bishop, by a pastor, which is to say by the church back in 372? Now, this led to a very rich Christian medical tradition in which most all of the earliest hospitals were created by churches. Because Jesus uniquely in the ancient world taught us to care for the sick and the hurting. And no offense here to our, you know, atheist or agnostic friends, but but this is why most every single hospital in the Western world has been given a Christian name, unless it was later renamed, because Jesus uniquely in the ancient world taught us to care for sick people, and the church taught us to do the same. Just as a quick aside, if you're here this morning, and you're, you're a healthcare worker in some form or fashion, would you mind raising your hand real quick? I won't embarrass you, I promise, but would you mind raising your hand, just on behalf of your church, we know it's been a really, really hard 18 months, and we could not be prouder of you, and you are being faithful to the faith that's been passed down. You're being faithful to your Christian heritage. We invented the hospital, baby. Now take things like human rights, human rights, you and me and all modern people, okay? We just look around the world, and we think it's so obvious That everybody is created equal and with equal rights. This is so obvious to us. As Thomas Jefferson famously put it in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be what? Self-evident, evident evident to all selves who are selves. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is self-evident. But y'all, can we just be honest with one another for just a moment here? If there is anything at all that is self-evident about everybody, it is that nobody is created equal. I mean, just, just look around this room. Does it really just occur to you naturally that everybody here they're just created equal? No, we we look different. Some are better looking, some have more money, some are healthier, some are stronger, some are more handsome, like you na- I mean, y'all, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And it's not somebody anybody in the history of the world ever thought all humans are created equal. Until Jesus. It was Jesus who taught us to look upon the sick, the suffering, the forgotten, the abandoned, and see the beloved sons and daughters of the living God. And it was the church who took Jesus so seriously that she taught us to do the same. Jesus, and not Thomas Jefferson, gifted the world with what we now call human rights. And the church gifted us Jesus. Amen? We could do this all morning, y'all. We could go on and on and on and on, literally all day. And that is why, despite her many flaws, I am not ashamed of the church, and you shouldn't be either. In fact, it's really not going too far to say that there is literally nothing, no movement, no organization, no government, no nothing, that has done more to bless the human race than this thing that we call church. And so if all that is true, and it quite obviously is true, if all that is true then why will our children and grandchildren struggle so much to see it? Because they will. Well, here's where things get very, very interesting. Given that unbelief has been on the rise for decades, it's easy to assume that people are now less committed to church because they believe in God less. It makes sense. And yet, while rising unbelief is a factor in the modern exodus from church, it does not appear to be one of the primary factors. In fact, when when lapsed Christians, and lapsed Christian just means somebody who once belonged to a church and they don't anymore. When lapsed Christians are asked why they don't belong to a church anymore, do you know what their number one answer is? It's very interesting. Their number one answer is I prefer to worship on my own. Not, not, I don't believe in God anymore. Not science has proven Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Not all Christians are hypocrites. No. The number one reason people who used to belong to a church don't anymore give for not belonging to a church is I prefer to worship on my own. And then the second biggest reason why people who used to belong to a church don't anymore do, don't do so is this. I don't like organized religion. Yeah. 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 Oh no. Is that my son? Yeah. Babe, I told you to muzzle him. No. That was pretty good. You got me, little buddy. And whenever, whenever I hear stuff like that, right? Like the. I don't like organized religion. My my first thought is, well, they must have have polled a bunch of Texans, you know, because I I get it. Texans, we're we're stubborn. We're independent. You know, we don't want anybody telling us what to do. I really get it. So whenever I hear this, I don't like organized religion thing, I kind of get it. But then I always think to myself, but, like, what exactly is the alternative? Like, you saying that you like disorganized religion? I don't know about y'all, but I'm a hard pass on disorganized religion because that sounds like you want to make Christianity up, right? And I don't want to make Christianity up. And so when we look at this troubling exodus from church, what becomes clear is that it's not so much that our children and grandchildren will be less likely to belong to a church because they'll be less likely to believe in God. No. Rather, it's that our increasing belief that we can be Christians without the church will lead to our children and grandchildren's increasing disbelief in God. Put it as straight as I know how for you. If you take the church for granted, your kids are going to take God for granted. This is not conjecture. The numbers are out. We know what they say. If you take church for granted, your kids are going to take God for granted. All that to say, it would appear as though our modern faith exodus has less to do with our increased skepticism about God... And more to do with our delusion that we can be Christians without the church. Because more than anything else, church is what makes God believable. Yeah. Church is what makes God believable. But maybe you find that difficult to believe. Um, And I understand that. And so this brings us back to Ephesians 1 and the enormous claims that Paul makes about the church. He's building to this huge rhetorical explosion where he's bragging about Jesus, right? Say, God, God raised Jesus from the dead and he's given him the name above every name. He's put all things under his feet, meaning Jesus is the reigning king of the universe, not will one day be the reigning king of the universe, but is even now the reigning king of the universe. It's outlandish stuff, but then he makes an even more outlandish claim in verses 22 through 23. Now, well, let's read it again. Here's what Paul says. And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ to the church as head over all things. Now, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And did you catch that? All right. Paul says that Jesus is the reigning and eternal king of the universe. And that the church is the reigning and eternal king of the universe's body. Body and is the fullness of him who is the fullness of everything. All right, so let's start off with this first thing. The church is the body of Christ. If you're like me, you've heard that so many times you've ceased to understand it, you know what I mean? Not because what's Paul saying? Paul says the church is the body of Christ, meaning the church is what God looks like in the world. The church is the form of Christ in the world. The church is the primary place in the world where God makes himself known. And then Paul says that the church is the fullness of Christ who is the fullness of everything. Not that church is nice, but it's not necessarily essential. Not that it is one of many places where you can experience God in the world. No, in no uncertain terms, Paul says that the church is the fullness of the Jesus who is the fullness of everything. Now, if you've been to our membership class. And you've heard me use this quote before because I think it does the best job I have come across explaining just what exactly the church is, what it is that is happening here, right? This is from a guy named Gerhard Lofink. He says, It can only be that God begins in a small way at one single place in the world. There must be a place visible and tangible where the salvation of the world can begin. That is where the world becomes what it's supposed to be according to God's plan. Now, beginning at that place, the new thing can spread abroad, and everybody must have the opportunity to come and see it. What drives people to the new thing cannot be force, not even moral pressure, but only the fascination of a world that's been changed. So in other words, here is God's plan to redeem the world. Through Jesus... In the power of the Holy Spirit and in fulfillment of God's promises to Father Abraham. God is creating these little families of people all over the world. Little families of people called churches. And these churches are the specific, tangible places in the world where God's future is being made present where the world is slowly becoming what it's meant to be and when they will be in God's future. This is why I tell you guys all the time, to be a Christian is to practice the future in the present because we know that Jesus is even right now the reigning and eternal king of the universe. And so we act like it now. We act like Jesus is Lord now. We practice the future in the present, right? So if you've ever wondered why we make you do these really annoying things like share your stuff, tell the truth about yourself, Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. That's why we are teaching you how to practice God's future in the present. And it is because of all this that the great church father Cyprian of Carthage famously said this. This is pretty potent stuff. He said, without the church as a mother, one cannot have God as a father. Similarly, he said, outside the church, there is no salvation. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he said something very similar. So, therefore, he who would find Christ must first find the church. And he who would know anything of Christ must not trust himself, nor build a bridge to heaven by his own reason. But he must go to the church, attend, and ask her. For outside the Christian church, there is no truth, there is no Christ, there is no salvation. And it's important to note here that Cyprian and Luther, they're not like speculating about who can and can't be saved. You know, who's in or who's out. No, they're rather just restating what Paul and the rest of the New Testament has said so explicitly and firmly about the church. Namely, that she is the body of Christ in the fullness of him who is the fullness of everything. The Bible really could not be clearer on this stuff. And yet... It's kind of inevitable that, you know, people like me and you, we, we wonder if we really need the church sometimes. You've wondered it. I've certainly wondered it before. We modern people, we're very prone to think that we can just kind of figure this thing out for ourselves. And so anytime I come across this question, this can I be a Christian without the church question, I always think of this scene from the, the all-time classic movie, *Tin Cup. You ever seen *Tin Cup? It's, it's great. It's classic. So the main character is played by Kevin Cosner. He plays a very talented but undisciplined golfer. In the scene in question, he's been in the middle of this round of golf where he, he lost his temper, throws a temper tantrum, and he breaks every one of his golf clubs except for one. He breaks 13 golf clubs, and he is left playing with only his 7-iron. the only club he's got left, and he manages miraculously to shoot even par. If you know anything about golf even par, it's very good. He shoots even par using only his 7-iron. Okay, so he's just finished this miraculous round of golf. Goes to the clubhouse. He's drinking with some of his buddies after the round. He's had a few too many probably. He's filling himself a little bit. And so he decides he's going to go brag about his miraculous round of golf to his arch enemy. And so Kevin Cosner, I think we've got a picture of this, he swaggers up to his nemesis. And he says, hey, guess what? I just shot even par with only a seven iron. And his nemesis just looks at him for a moment, and then he responds, why? Why would you do that? Like, I mean, I guess it's cool that you shot even par with a severed but why in the world would you be such a petulant little child that you throw a temper tantrum in the middle of a round and you break 13 golf clubs and you are left playing the rest of the round with just a seven iron so I mean I guess congrats if you feel that way but look your accomplishment is more a testimony to your silliness than it is your skill and I always think of that scene anytime I come across this hey can I be a can I be a Christian without the church way of thinking because I always think to myself why like why? why would you want to make it so hard on yourself? Why would you not want to connect yourself to the body of Christ, to the fullness of him who is the fullness of everything? Can I be a Christian without a church? I mean, I don't know. Maybe probably not a very good one, but why in the world would you want to do that? Right? Because look, sure you've got your Bible. Maybe like, you know what? I got my Bible, my Bethel playlist, man. I am good. Don't need anything else. Okay. Fair enough. Bible and Bethel, but riddle me this. Okay. You got your Bible, but who gave you your Bible? Where did that Bible come from? Did they just fall down out of the heavens one day, thunk you on the head and say, read me? Where would you get that Bible? I'll tell you where you got your Bible. The church gave you your Bible. God, through the church, wrote your Bible, formed your Bible, translated your Bible, and preserved your Bible so that you could be handed your Bible a couple thousand years later. That's how you got your Bible. As Dave mentioned a couple weeks ago, the church also helps us interpret our Bibles because when you interpret the Bible by yourself... Uh, do not go very well don't know if you've ever tried it you usually end up a heretic <clears throat> that's what usually happens every christian cult and heresy in the history of the world it's the same story you don't need to watch any of those netflix documentaries I'll, I'll sum them all up real quick it's some dude sitting alone in the room deciding he's gonna read the bible by himself and then he walks out of this mysterious encounter with the bible by himself telling everybody that he's supposed to sleep with all their wives because that will somehow make jesus come back that's every cult in the history of the world and that's what happens when you read your bible by yourself and so all that said What Scripture says about it, I'm just telling you, it's it's what will happen. What Scripture says about the church, it is breathtaking. And it's really, really clear. And so what does it look like to believe it? What do we say it means to believe something? It means you act like it's true. That's what it means to believe something. What does it look like to act like what Scripture says about the church is true? And, of course, the, the Christian practice, habit, discipline that best embodies everything that Scripture says about the church is, uh, well, it's what we're doing right now, weekly communal worship. And at some point in the not-too-distant past, it became very fashionable to downplay the importance of weekly communal worship. It became very fashionable to say things like, well, you know, church is really about community, mission, justice, whatever it is, the church isn't really about Sunday mornings. And while it is, of course, true that there is more to church than weekly communal worship, there is much more to church than weekly communal worship, there ain't less to church than weekly communal worship. And weekly communal worship has always been the most important thing that the church does, that Christians do. For example... Harvard political scientist Robert Putnam, it's a pretty big deal. He's not a Christian. He conducted an enormous survey a few years back that measured the social moral habits of Americans. Okay, so that's stuff like uh, how much money we give, volunteer work that we do, blood we give, helping our neighbors, involvement in civic organizations, mentoring children, stuff like that. And across the board, the study found that religious people were more active and altruistic citizens the non-religious people, which, well, it's good. It's good to know that religion makes a difference, but it's not particularly surprising. I mean, you would hope that would be the case. Rather, what was really, really surprising was that the best indicator of a person's moral, civic involvement, right, their active commitment to the good of those around them, was not what they said they believed, but was rather how frequently they attended Worship. The more frequently someone attends worship, the more likely they are to be actively committed to the good of others. That was the finding of the survey. The more frequently people attend worship, the more likely they are to be actively committed to the good of others. And does anybody else find that amazing? I find that amazing. Not so that we can like pat ourselves on the back for being better people than our atheists or pagan neighbors or something like that. No, not because that, because it's a reminder that the church knows what she's talking about, Amen. She does. There are a lot of us who are very skeptical of the church, and I understand that, but perhaps you should be a little more skeptical of yourself. Because the church has a very good track record. The church knows what she's talking about. The church knows that because she is the body of Christ and the fullness of the Jesus who is the fullness of everything, there is nothing more important than our weekly communal gathering for worship in order to ensure that we are loving God and loving people by living and sharing the gospel. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. We are creatures, dust in the hand of the eternal God who is our maker, our creator. The only thing we are entitled to is nothing. And yet you have freely given us everything. God, I pray for a lot of my friends in the room this morning, new friends, old friends. I I know everybody in here has been wounded by the church. And I know that because everybody in here has wounded others in the church. And so we confess that. We don't deny it. We don't hide it like we talked about last week. We tell the truth about it. We ask that you continue to purify the church of all sorts of things that are wrong, injustice, abuse, you name it, purify the church. But in that purification, God, Keep us in love with the church. Help us to see all the good that the church has gifted the world. So much good that sometimes we just take it to hospitals and human rights and a million other things. So, God, we just pause and we say thank you. We treasure and love your son, King Jesus, who is even now the reigning eternal king of the universe. And we pray that we would be that space and time where we go ahead and act like Jesus is Lord because we know it's true. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.